I wanted to highlight something uh, before we jump in. I wanted to highlight something we're planning to do this coming summer, uh, which is something we've done in the past. So just to help us foster a healthy rhythm and sustainability for our liturgy, uh, we plan to observe a Sabbath Sunday uh, throughout the summer. And so, you know, we've been so intentional about this liturgy being the work of the people, uh, and we're appreciative of everyone that participates. And we also acknowledge that we need rest. Uh, we don't want to be overworked. We don't want to be overused. And so it's been a meaningful way for our community, for our leadership, for our volunteers, just to find some space to rest. So the first Sunday of each month in the summer, uh, we will not have in-person liturgy here. Uh, but we do plan to offer some alternative forms of connection and rest. So in June, we'll probably have some sort of, you know, picnic brunch at the park somewhere. Uh, in July, we'll have that as completely off to just rest. And then in August, we'll probably connect with Inside Books Project, which, which is the partner that works out of here. And we'll volunteer to help, you know, write letters and send books to the incarcerated here in Texas. So that's just to give you a heads up. Um, and as we get closer to June, we'll uh, give you more details. But for this morning, before we jump in, uh, I want to give you a moment to reflect on this question. Uh, what's a film or a TV show that you've watched multiple times? All right, maybe it's because you wanted to see something that you missed the first time or you wanted to see it in a different way or you just loved it, whatever it is, all right? So what's something that you've watched multiple times and what was that experience like for you? So go ahead and take a moment, think about that, uh, meet someone new next to you maybe and just kind of share that uh, for a moment. I'll give you a moment to do that. All right, so seems to be a lot of energy around that question. Lots of people have lots of thoughts. <laughs> so let me hear some of these if you, you want to throw out something. What's, what's something that you've watched multiple times? Anyone? Nash. Oh, MASH. That's right. Yes. Going old school. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Okay, nice. Cars 2. And that's completely your choice. All your choice, yeah, yeah. What was that? Jane Eyre, yes. I did not watch that one. Sorry. Jojo Rabbit, good one. Ted Lasso. Anyone else? Succession. Wow, you can watch that multiple times. That's intense. Okay. All right, I see you. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Stranger Things. Wow, that's intense too. Watching that multiple times. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so, so one of the genres that uh, my older daughter, Gabby, has gotten into the last couple of years uh, is murder mysteries. <laughs> and so, which might have been a little concerning at first because she was like, hey, dad, uh, I need you to check out this book for me from the library. It's called... A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. <laughs> and my response was like, uh, everything okay? <laughs> it's like, no, 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 don't worry, Dad. It's, it's not like that. Don't worry about it. It's like, I just love the genre. I'm like, I guess that's more comforting. <laughs> <laughs> 
But then on her 16th birthday, she did this whole uh, murder mystery party. It was like 1920s theme. They all got dressed up, which was a lot of fun to see. Um, but one of our favorite murder mystery shows that we've watched together is The After Party. So I don't know if you've seen The After Party. But each episode, they take a different character and focus that night around their experience from their perspective. And on top of that, each character has their own sort of genre. So whether it's rom-com or a musical or animation uh, or just action. Uh, so it's really well done, a lot of fun. And so after we watched the whole thing, we watched it again when our oldest son, Zachary, came back from college. And so when you watch something like this a second time, you begin to look for things, right? You begin to intentionally find where the clues and what the conversations were that you missed the first time. But there's actually a whole other level to this series. So the creators actually put in some Easter eggs, some really like one complex clue in every episode. All right, so for example, there's this one scene and in the background, there's like this red light, but it's blinking. And I won't spoil it for you, but if you know Morse code <laughs> and you translate that sentence, it'll actually tell you, it'll eliminate one of the suspects. It'll tell you it is not so-and-so. So apparently people were watching this deeply, looking this deeply into episodes that they found each of these Easter eggs. Um, and that just kind of reveals how deeply people were watching and how deeply they were looking. And when it comes to our journey of faith, right, how, how are we looking deeply, right? Especially for us who grew up in church, how are we going back and rewatching our faith for a second, third, fourth time, and maybe seeing the things that we missed, maybe seeing the things that we got wrong the first time? And in some ways, I think that explains why Jesus taught using stories and parables, because it offers another perspective, another lens, just different ways to look at how we interact with the divine, how we interact with each other. You know, when his disciples asked why he used parables, this is how Jesus responded. He said, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so we've been given the tools and capacity to make better sense of the divine, of ourselves, of the world around us. But it comes down to how intentional we are in expanding our vision to grow in our understanding of God and others. And so the question I want to explore this morning is what are some areas that need a deeper look when it comes to how we see Christ, how we see others, how we see ourselves? How are we invited to expand our vision and see more deeply the things we might have missed before in our faith journey? And so in our lectionary text for this morning, we read through the experience of Stephen, uh, who is traditionally known as the first martyr in the Christian faith. And we discover that not only does he have his own vision of seeing Christ in a clear way, but he also gains clarity in using his own voice to speak truth to power. And he looks deeply at the violence of others and what that means for his own nonviolent response. And so let me offer you a bit more context about Stephen's story. So he 
was a Greek-speaking Jewish convert who started following Jesus when he was living in Jerusalem. And at one point, the apostles entrusted some leaders to oversee the distribution of food to, to the widows, to the poor, and one of these leaders was Stephen. And over time, though, he got into debates about whether limiting worship to the temple in Jerusalem was essential to their faith. He was making the case that there was always been this progressive understanding of God's vision being more inclusive, more expansive, if they actually took the time to look more deeply. And so some religious leaders found this extremely offensive, and so they brought false charges against him so they could take him to court and put him on trial, because they had a very narrow and limited understanding of God. And they imposed their lens and perspective on those around them, even if it meant they were oppressive and harmful. And so during his trial, Stephen reflects on how the Hebrew tradition of Abraham and Moses and the prophets, they were all ultimately pointing to the expansive and liberating nature of God, which is what Jesus embodied. And after he finishes his defense in verse 55, it says, but filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so whether this was a literal vision or just a vision in his mind, the Spirit guides his gaze to see Jesus clearly and authentically for who he really is. And in some ways, this was probably validation and even affirmation of his understanding of what Jesus taught and lived out, and that was in alignment with God's vision of inclusiveness and liberation. What he saw was free from the oppressive lens that the religious leaders were trying to impose and pass down on others. And so for us, in our attempt to look deeper and, and to expand our vision, we're invited to see Christ through a decolonized lens. Not a lens that has been handed down to us in oppressive ways, but how might we remove the oppressive layers and filters that impact our view of Christ and our faith? Uh, there's a recent episode of the podcast, Faith for Normal People, and Peter Enns had a conversation with Danielle Thomas, uh, who's a theologian and activist, and she reflected on what it means to practice a decolonized faith. Uh, this is how she describes it. She says, we love to limit the text, the scripture, to be what we need it to be in order to maintain the system of hierarchical power. And that is why I lean more toward the decolonizing rather than just deconstruction. Oftentimes I find that deconstruction stops where it gets uncomfortable. Decolonizing faith for me means unpacking what does it mean to look at God and not see yourself reflected? Unpacking who's been benefiting from telling us of a God who can only see us as a whole if we fall into these very narrow, limited definitions of what it means to be Christian. And that's helpful for me because, you know, when I reflected on how I deconstructed my faith, it was centered primarily around my own experience. Right? I mainly considered how it impacted me. It did involve taking apart beliefs and theological frameworks 
that lived in the world of literalism, right, and how it impacted how I read scripture. It involved moving away from a fear and shame-based practice of faith. And while deconstruction does address some of the hurtful experiences, decolonizing our faith feels a little more uncomfortable because it's inviting us to take a deeper look at who we have harmed when we've carried out the beliefs that we had. We're invited to take a deeper look at what people we gave less love to or overlooked completely when we internalized these beliefs. We're invited to take a deeper look at the systems that we need to dismantle so that we can show people that we were wrong. Decolonizing is looking deeper and getting to the root of how this oppressive lens has led to oppressive faith and beliefs. One of the examples she shared was how focusing on a suffering Christ can be a form of suppression, right? Suffering was definitely a part of Christ's story and experience. And yet if we insist on that being the primary expression of our faith, it can be damaging and oppressive to marginalized groups of people who have historically suffered at the hands of those with power and privilege. It's been used to manipulate and maintain a power differential that should not exist. And instead, a decolonized lens might focus more on a radical Christ, how Jesus lived a radical life in order to topple oppressive systems, how he used his privilege as a man in a patriarchal society to advocate for and protect women. Focusing on a radical Christ empowers us to move against oppressive systems. And so for us, what is our work of decolonizing when it comes to how we see Christ and our faith? Maybe a practice we can try this week is to take a deeper look at how the lens we've been using to see Christ and our faith might be oppressive. How have the ways we've practiced our faith actually been harmful to others? And then how might we dismantle systems that perpetuate oppressive faith? But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then we continue in verse 56. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. And so as Stephen is articulating this vision of seeing Christ, the religious leaders don't want to hear about it. The writer captures almost like a toddler response with this image of them covering their ears. Like if they can't hear it, then it's not real. And what is it that they refuse to hear? You know, if we look back again to Stephen's speech in the previous chapter, he highlights two groups of people throughout their history. Those who receive God's message and messengers and those who reject them. And so he's essentially lumping these religious leaders with the group that rejects God's message of inclusiveness and liberation for all of humanity. They were more interested in clinging to their power and influence by insisting on their version of God and imposing that on others. 
And so covering their ears is symbolic of those in power choosing not to hear the prophetic voice that's reflecting back to them their oppressive practices and their lack of self-awareness. Power and empire are not interested in listening to the voices coming from below. And yet for Stephen, he has the courage to see that his own voice is necessary to name the rejection of God's vision of inclusion and liberation. And so for us, in our attempt to look deeper and expand our vision, we're invited to see our own voice as an integral part of the work of advocacy. When we encounter those who would reject God's plan of flourishing for all of humanity, all of creation, our voice is meant to speak truth to power. And so how are we offering words and critique that the empire would rather not hear or acknowledge? You know, this month uh, is API Heritage Month, where we celebrate the Asian American and Pacific Islander community and culture. And it was first established uh, in 1990. Uh, and the month of May is significant because in May of 1843, the first Japanese immigrant, who's this 14-year-old boy, uh, came to the U.S. And then in May of 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, which took six years to build, and it was predominantly Chinese-Americans who laid down the tracks by hand under extremely harsh working conditions. Our history in this country has been long and painful as we continue to navigate racism and prejudice against people of Asian descent. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was able to catch the screening of a documentary called Chinatown Rising. It was created by a father-son duo uh, to capture the challenges that San Francisco's Chinatown faced in the 1960s and 70s. And Harry Chuck, the father, had filmed a lot of the struggle that they had endured. And his son discovered all of this footage that had just been sitting in his dad's garage for decades. And they decided to put this documentary together to tell the story of what many Chinese Americans experienced in that time and place and how many of their needs, including basic housing, were neglected. Uh, check out this video clip. What were you planning to do with all that footage you shot? Well, at one point I had a big film project in mind. And I actually started it. Rarely do the Chinese in San Francisco organize themselves to express an opinion on public issues. But that has changed. I knew Chinatown was different. But I don't know if any, anyone else really understood. Chinatown at that time did not think they have a problem. So I was the one who said, no, we have a problem. We must bring self-determination to our own community. America is all about fighting the system when it's not right. I guess this, you just can't do this. This is not right. I don't think really that anybody give a damn. That is the real issue. I didn't think that 
my films had any lasting consequence, they would not change anybody's life. So I highly encourage anyone uh, to watch this, even if you don't identify as part of the API community. Uh, we're in the middle of planning this, and I think we'll be able to offer a screening of this here at Vesper at the end of the month. Uh, so I'll keep you posted, and we'll get some details out once it's confirmed. But for me, as I was watching it, it was so inspiring uh, to see someone who looks like me so active and involved in social justice work and activism, especially back in the 60s. I mean, that's what's so mind-blowing to me. Because my identity as a Chinese American with immigrant parents has been shaped primarily around being silent, around assimilating, around being quiet, keeping my head down, right? Not causing trouble. That way of being has been so deeply embedded in myself and most of our Asian American community. And the question that surfaced for me as I was watching this was why Right? Why was I so hesitant? Why, why do I shy away from that? Why do I fear or suppress the invitation to be vocal, to speak truth to power, to advocate for those who are powerless, which sometimes includes ourselves? You know, after the screening, the father and son did a Q&A, uh, which was really meaningful to hear just their experience and journey of making the film. And it was also really cute watching the father trying to get Zoom to work on his computer. <laughs> we saw a lot of close-ups of his forehead, which was really adorable. Uh, but one of the key things they both kept emphasizing was the need for each person to tell their story. Right? Using your voice is the one tool and gift that each of us has uniquely been given, especially when we can use it to speak against injustice and oppressive systems and to advocate for those who are being ignored and overlooked. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is to take a deeper look at how we do see or we don't see the value of our own voice. How might each of us offer a unique voice and story in our collective work of advocacy? And how might using that voice move us towards embodied justice and solidarity with the powerless. And then maybe we can take a deeper look at what people don't want to hear. How are people covering their ears when it comes to racial inequity and discrimination or gun violence, which reared its ugly head again yesterday in Allen, Texas, or reproductive rights or LGBTQ rights and protections? What areas do we see our unique voice capable of engaging? And where do our experiences overlap with the experiences of those needing advocacy? And so Stephen said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. And then we close in verse 58. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. And so these religious leaders were so confident in their own belief system and their position of power that they had no hesitation in stoning Stephen. And while that's happening, there's almost like a little Easter egg here, right? Saul's mentioned. I imagine he's in the background, like a shadowy figure, right? People are laying their coats down at his feet and then picking up stones to, st- stones to kill Stephen. And it paints this image of Saul seeing what's happening in front of him with wholehearted approval. Because they all view Stephen through dehumanized lens. But this is all foreshadowing because we will read later that Saul, whose name becomes Paul, has his own dramatic encounter with Christ, loses his actual sight, and it's his blindness that leads him to change how he sees Christ himself and others. But here we see that Stephen's death parallels Jesus' experience, right? Both were practicing a faith that was subverting the religious establishment. Both were falsely accused and put on trial. Both were executed with extreme violence. And as they both were dying, they used their last breath to address their perpetrators. Jesus asks God to forgive them for they know not what they do. And here, Stephen asks God not to hold this act of violence against them. And so for us, in our attempt to look deeper, to expand our vision, we're invited to see others in the context of their violence and wrestle with the tension of our nonviolent response. And as we look deeper for the image of God in each person, both victim and victimizer, how does that impact the way we see those who perpetuate violence and those who are on the receiving end? Uh, Miroslav Volf is a theologian from Croatia. In the mid-1980s, he was actually taken away from his wife and from his studies to serve in the Yugoslavian military as punishment for some critical things he had written about their communist government. Eventually, he was falsely accused of being a spy, and they imprisoned him, interrogated him, physically and mentally tortured him. Fortunately, he survived all that, and he went on to become a theologian, but he had to deal with the consequences of that abuse that he experienced. He wrote a book called The End of Memory, in which he processes the pain and suffering that was inflicted on him by his interrogator. And this is how he describes the tension he was trying to navigate. He says, given how central memory is to human identity, the question cannot simply be whether we should remember our past or forget it. The interesting questions are rather, what should we remember? How should we go about remembering? Should wrongs be remembered eternally? To remember a wrongdoing is to struggle against it. The central question was how to remember rightly. And given my Christian sensibilities, my question from the start was, how should I remember abuse as a person committed to loving the wrongdoer and overcoming evil with good? And so in his book, he describes how he has this internal mental dialogue 
with his interrogator and tries to understand why he did what he did. And then he's processing his own reactions of bitterness and anger and, and hurt. And for the most part, he doesn't get anywhere in these imaginary dialogues with this interrogator until he finally adds another person in the room. And when he mentally brings Jesus into the room with the two of them, most of his objections no longer hold any weight because of what Jesus experienced, because of what he taught and modeled. And Wolf realized that Jesus was the guide who could navigate him through this process of forgiveness and grace. And so he proposes that we have a responsibility to move towards non-remembrance. And I acknowledge the tension this may bring up because many of us grew up in church environments was where the message was forgive and forget, right? But that was used in an oppressive way that only further repressed those who were victimized. It was another way to suppress and control people who were on the receiving end of violence and harm. But Wolf is clear in naming that forgiveness involves acknowledgement from the perpetrator before reconciliation can happen. And that non-remembrance can be a healing landing spot for forgiveness in his mind. And in some ways, that's maybe what Stephen and Jesus were engaging when they both asked God that these acts of violence not be held against them. And while there should be an acknowledgement of the pain and suffering that's caused, our invitation is to move towards non-remembrance as a gift that God offers both the victims and the victimizers. And I'll admit that this is a huge tension and a lifelong struggle that I think all of us will continue to wrestle with and process. And so as we close, my hope for us, Fox, is that we would continue to gaze and look deeply at ourselves, at others, at Christ, in a way that might expand our vision. That we would see Christ with a liberating lens, that we would see our own voices with an advocating lens, and that we would see others with a forgiving lens. So let me close with this prayer. God who created us all in your image, without hierarchy and without power differential, may we practice faith that does not oppress, but liberates and establishes all as equals. Jesus who experienced humanity's violence chose to absorb it all in order to end the cycle of violence. May we perpetuate nonviolence throughout our systems and hold accountable those who abuse power. And spirit who inhabits our internal world, guiding us to expand our vision. May our voice of advocacy surface from within so that we may live in solidarity with the least of these. And so we ask all this through the wholeness of God, our creator, the nonviolence of Christ, and the solidarity of the Spirit. Amen.